Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. I know I ended episode five in these podcasts on U.S. history with the pretty incendiary idea that racism wasn't what caused slavery, rather it was the other way around. But do you remember towards the end, too, of podcast five when I had mentioned that the European powers essentially were all about exploration for exploiting three things? And by exploiting, I truly mean that's a negative word. That means just saturating something, soaking up for all it's worth, and then leaving it for dead after that. We talked about the exploitation of land and nature. But remember, too, was the word humanity, human beings. So in this podcast, number six, what we're looking at now is who personally colonized in North America. We're, we're going to get to slavery. I'm going to, we're going to get there. But slavery was such a mad, the institution as a whole was such a massive undertaking that it, it doesn't happen overnight. And Europe is scrambling to try to find a population that can work this new land. Please remember too, and I know I mentioned this in a prior podcast, but it, 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 it bears repeating. It's worth repeating that remember that it is going to take decades for the Europeans to really understand just how large the North and South American continents really are. As I mentioned before, I show my students a map of, of the Americas in the 1500s, written, of course, by European cartographers, map makers, that still shows in the 1500s that North and South America are about the size of Japan. They just assume that the Pacific Ocean is just on the other side of this next massive prairie or mountain chain or wherever it might be. It's just so it, it's going to take a long time to process the size. And when they do, when the Europeans do finally realize the size, they're going to be as awestruck as they were by the initial discovery. That again, as I say, you can take modern day France and spin that inside Texas. Spain fits inside Texas. Germany fits inside the western half of Montana, right? So what I'm getting at is if you take every citizen from those colonizing mother countries, so take, for example, the French colonies in the Americas, you take every French citizen, just simply evacuate all of the country of France to have them work the new land, you're not remotely going to have enough people. And again, as I say, we know that now looking back at the size, when it finally dawns on the European mother countries, just how large this is. But this is a discovery that is in the making in this chronological time period where we're at, which is in the 1500s, the discovery of these two huge continents. So I looked at an outliner, episode five, looking at the mother countries that colonized and their common characteristics. You know, they had a massive Navy as well as an army. But again, when I say or explain to my classes that 
Spain colonized here in South America or France colonized here in North America. That to be funny, but it's not as though the country of France just jumped off the world map and swam across the ocean and then jumped here. No, obviously we're talking about people, French citizens, Spanish citizens, right? English people and citizens. They're the ones that are coming over here colonizing this land. But who exactly did that, you know, the idea of discovery is lauded in a lot of uh, different capacities as a positive thing. And I'm not arguing that it's not. But again, your average person is not going to want to take the terror of the age, which was became known as the transatlantic crossing. If weather conditions are absolutely perfect, it takes six weeks. Any kind of foul weather that blows that ship off course is only adding to the time and, of course, adding to the anxiety. So there weren't a whole heck of a lot of people that were willing to take a chance on what these new worlds had to offer. So looking at this, in the average American history textbook, they're not going to discuss what I am going to uh, talk about here, which is, again, this, you know, the who that came over here. A majority of the information that I'm sharing with you here came out of an unfinished work before he died by a, a historian by the name of Richard Hofstetter, where in his book, America at 1750, that he outlined and did extensive research on who the actual types of individuals were that came over to the new world. Again, something that the average American history class taught in high school or college doesn't have the time or the means to go into. So when we're looking at the personalities of these individuals, who were they? Well, no surprise. And you might say, well, maybe that's the reason, Chris, these textbooks don't talk about it because it's common sense. Well, initially, yes, it was the bold. It was the brave, the most adventuresome, the young, the rebellious, and yes, often the uneducated that were willing to take that risk to face down that danger of what again became known as the transatlantic crossing. However, I don't want to imply, and this is where the textbooks again leave, leave this information out, I don't want to imply that these, these, these were individuals that were just bored. They had faced every challenge that they possibly could there in Europe, and they were just looking for a new sense of adventure. No, many of these individuals were looking to get away from something. And there were three major somethings that made taking that risk of that danger worthwhile. One, of course, was religious persecution. If you're asking yourself, wait a minute, religious persecution in the old world in Europe? Uh, maybe that vaguely comes to mind, but I'm not sure what you're talking about. See you in the World, po world History podcast for those, because there are so many in number that I can only cover the major ones. And yet there were extensively far more than that, right? So religious persecution, the rising Christians versus the Muslims, the Christians versus the Jews, the Roman Catholics versus the Protestants. Which Protestants? Anglican? Before that, Calvinism? Before that, the uh, idea of Lutheranism? Yeah, we're talking about all of those, right? All of those were sources of wars. That was a great place to be in the age of religious persecutions. Yes, many of these rebellious, uh, rebellious individuals were looking to get away from that. They also wanted to get rid of for the other source of war, political reasons, territorial disputes, wars of succession, 
Yeah, come on. You remember those, hearing those in high school uh, history or American or uh, world history, the political wars of ascension? Who's going to become the next king or queen? The entire Hundred Years' War, which, of course, was 116 years. Leave it to the historians to plug that one up or label that one. So nevertheless, 116 years that England and France are going to battle about which ruling dynasty rules France. Oh, yeah. Plenty of political wars to get away from. And if we want to get away from war and religious persecution, is there any other reason to get out of Dodge, to leave the old world to come to the new world? Absolutely. Overcrowded cities and towns. You remember hearing about that thing called the bubonic plague, the Black Plague that we talked about earlier. Even though the major first wave of that was there and gone, episodes in late hot and humid summers were relapsing and surfacing again. So getting away from these overcrowded cities and towns was also a significant reason to leave the old world and to face the dangers of the transatlantic crossing. However, you weren't remotely going to get enough people to actually work the land that the mother countries were establishing. Remember, as I said before, just because France discovered a particular territory doesn't mean that she plants the French flag and boom, every other ruling power that's trying to come over here looks at that and says, ah, oh, shucks, France got here first. Wow, good for them. Look at the land they got. Heck no. If there is no French army defending that flag, that flag disappears to be replaced by the Portuguese flag or the English or the Spanish, right? You get the idea. So no, France has to have an army here. She needs to have government workers to establish the administration of the colonies. And then she needs the bodies in order to work that land to send the raw materials back to Europe to be made into finished products. So these European mother countries, they needed free labor and they needed it yesterday. Hence the rise of what Richard Hofstetter, again in his book, America at 1750, describes as a term that was used then, the spirits. The spirits, while maybe given a connotation of a religious entity or body, was nothing of the sort. The spirit in this case was actually a negative term. The spirits were human traffickers, to use the common word or label today. These were recruiting agents that were looking anywhere and everywhere for victims to make that transatlantic crossing. And while Hofstetter, beginning on page 36 and going on extensively from there, he describes in practically nauseating detail the effort that these recruiting individuals, these spirits, would do in order to get victims for the mother country sent over to the colonies in the New World. And I'm going to sum sum it up essentially in, in this particular type of a story. We're going to just simply say that this is the story of Jim and Bob, two men that were didn't have much family there in the middle of France, didn't have much going other than their job, which is barely making ends meet. So Jim and Bob, these are two individuals that were lollygagging around in the middle of the town square when one of these spirits approaches them and says, more or less, did you hear about the discoveries in the new world? how beautiful it is and how it's the land of opportunity and nothing but good things and silver linings everywhere. It's where everybody wants to be. But 
don't repeat that. I'm just so giddy, so excited to be going there myself that I had to tell somebody. And they would attempt to weasel off. And of course, Jim and Bob would say, hey, wait a minute here. Tell me about this place. And the recruiting would begin. The bait and switch would start. And Jim and Bob would be told about all these beautiful, wonderful things of the new world. And the only cost that they would have to fork over was the fare to get over there, paying for their passageway. Once they got off the ship in the new world, whatever they saw that didn't have a label, the more or less that it was already occupied or owned, whatever they saw as far as the eye could see would be theirs for the taking if they wanted it. Jim and Bob look at one another and say, well, anything's better than these overcrowded cities and trying to not get nailed by a cannonball from a political war here and an arrow from a religious war in the opposite direction. Tell me more about this, please. So Jim and Bob get sucked in even more. And they say, well, and actually, you know, it's funny you say that, the Spirit says, because I've got a couple of more seats on the riverboat that I'm about to take back out to the Atlantic Ocean to get onto the ship to carry, our, to carry myself over there. If you boys are really interested, you have to prove you have the money. Come back at this point tomorrow and demonstrate that you prove that you have the money. So Jim and Bob sell what they have. They wrap everything up. They're excited. They approach the recruiter the next morning and they say, here we are. Here's all the money we have. And they hand it over and they say, oh, no, 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 no. We don't take the money until you're satisfied that that passage over is everything you expected it to be. And the new world is what you want it to be. Well, if they had any doubts in their mind that this was a sham, they were gone now. Those doubts evaporated, right? So come on over then to the ferry. And why don't you make yourself at home? as I'm just getting finished with a couple of other people that I'd already committed to having a passageway over. They can't get on that, that uh, ferry boat fast enough or river boat fast enough, right? They get on there. They find out where their sleeping quarters, extremely comfortable, better than what they had at home. They start getting hungry. They look around. They say, well, just a few minutes, we're going to have a buffet of the finest food and shrink you could possibly ask for. Oh, my gosh. And, and how do we pay for this? No, that's all part of the fare. When you get over there, when you get over to the new world, there is no reason, ladies and gentlemen, for any doubt to get into the mind of these two men, of these two victims. And there they would make themselves comfortable eating high off the hog and enjoying some of the finest wines. And at other stops along the way, other people, aka victims, would be getting on board. And then they would get to the mouth of the river as they would leave the continent of Europe for the main passage or for the, excuse me, to get to the ship that would carry them on the passageway to the new world, a six week journey. And the recruiter would once again say, everybody's sure that this is what you want because now is your last time to get off. No way. They can't wait to get over there. They would, the riverboat would then leave the harbor, get out into the closed waters of the Atlantic Ocean get right up, right up alongside the transatlantic ship. The ladder would be brought down. All the victims would go up on board. On deck, there they would look out and see Europe for the last time and can't wait to get away from there. And that ferry boat would go off looking for more victims. Where's our sleeping quarters here? Let's go and look below deck. No, 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 no. Let's wait until we pull up anchor and we get these sails hoisted. Then you have plenty of times to look around. 
one of the most luxurious liners that's going across the Atlantic Ocean today. They can't wait until the anchor is drawn up, the sails are unfurled, and they start making their way west. It is only then that the beginning of the horror of the Atlantic crossing begins to start getting revealed to them. They are shown their sleeping quarters, which are nothing more than the types of wood planks that you envision that were used for the slave trade. These are the same types of ships, same type of overcrowded barracks down below. No, they weren't tied up. No, they could go where anywhere they wanted. Where are you going to go? Jump? You going to swim? They're stuck. And the horror begins to set in. The horror finally is gets the worst of it is when the hunger pains start to rattle their abdomens. And from there, they get in line for the food to wait for to get into the dining room for that buffet for those grandiose meals. When that dining room door opens up and they are basically shoved the equivalent of a paper type of a plate or a wooden plate or bowl where they are dropped this nauseating smelling gruel that is put into the bowl or thrown onto the plate. And there they attempt to leave the line to go back to go find a table to eat and they are abruptly stopped and told, you have to pay for that food. No, 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 they say, no, no, we don't pay until we get over there. In fact, we don't pay until we're sure we're satisfied and we're, and they start laughing. And the recruiting agents just laugh and laugh. Yeah, who told you that? You got your receipt? Why don't you go ahead back and get that person and show them to us because we have no idea what you're talking about. So for the first of many meals over the next six weeks, they're paying. And by the time these transatlantic ships make it to the east co eastern coast of the United former future United States countries in Central or South America, they get on deck and they can't wait to get off that ship. But before they get off, the hands are out of the recruiters that are demanding to have the fare paid. And of course, by this point, providing they did have enough money, they don't have enough now. They had enough money when they left Europe, but they don't have enough money now to pay their way for the transatlantic crossing. If they ran out of money a few days before, they're beyond starving now because then they couldn't eat. Whoops, can't pay your fare? It looks like you're going to have to work your debt off. Welcome to the second line of human slaves that would Europe would bring over to work the land. When I say the second group, I know what you're thinking. Well, wait a minute, what about the Native Americans? Right, they were attempting to be enslaved too, but there's two huge problems with that that we'll see later on with trying to enslave natives of their own land. But so as again, just to point out here in a quick summary, Slavery from the continent of Africa, slaves from the continent of Africa, was not automatically started the moment these lands were discovered. Europe was attempting to enslave natives of North, Central, and South America, and when that didn't work out, enslave people of Europe, and when these victims could no longer be recruited, they started emptying out the jails for political and religious prisoners, but again, it didn't work out because there wasn't enough people. And what's more is that these people could communicate. 
all these types of populations to, to enslave was presenting more problems than it was solving. So we'll get more about that too as the European mother countries start scratching their head, panicking that they have all this land to work, but they don't seem to have a human population that they can make it work. So again, these groups that came over here, these victims of the recruiting spirits, were groups of people that who eventually would escape and work their way on their new land in whatever way that they could possibly uh, make happen, that these were individuals, though, folks, that did not take well to authority. These would be the great, great, great grandparents of the eventual rebels who would also want to throw off the constraints of government in order to govern themselves. Hint, hint, of course, to that eventual group we call the Founding Fathers. So within this, let's look at English settlement. For just in point of an analogy here, just to try to keep this image in mind, that when I'm teaching this in class, I ask for a show of hands of anybody that has ever been outside of the United States to Europe or South America or Asia, um, Australia, and came back to the United States. How many have ever done that full trip? And of course, you know, out of a class of 30, 10 students might raise their hand. So I asked them, if you came by plane, if you flew out of the United States and back in, put your hands down. And almost every hand goes down. Occasionally, I find one or two students. And then, of course, those students came over by boat. So I focus on those students. And I said, now, when your ship came in to the, uh, to the waters of the United States, where did you get off of that ship? And they scratched their heads because they probably never thought about it since they did it. But they said, well, you know, the, now that you mention it or asked, the ship sailed into a harbor and I got off the boat onto the dock and then worked my way over onto dry land. So, oh, so you didn't have to jump in the water or anything. And of course they laugh and they know what I'm getting at. This land, when I say this land, meaning North, Central, and South America, was a brand new set of territories to people coming over from Europe. They would have no idea that a vast majority of the world's tornadoes, over 85% of them, took place in the North American continent. They would have no idea what these torrential storms we would eventually call hurricanes, how frequently they seem to attack North and Central America. They would have no idea how to fight off the insects and other animals and mammals that they never had to worry about back in Europe. It made for a very, very difficult way of life. When these ships came in, the very initial the initial ships, of course, all they can do is come as close as where they begin to see the sandbar, and that huge transatlantic ship has to stop and drop anchor, drop the canoes and rowboats into the water, and then work your ways to the shore. From there, you're going to jump out and pull that canoe up, and you're looking at nothing but vegetation in front of you. There's no sign of a human population unless they're coming into contact with Native Americans. In some cases, of course, they did. In some cases, they wouldn't for some time. But we do know this, that more often than not, the contact was a violent one, was a negative one. 
So from 1492 all the way through to the early part of the 1600s, this was a roughly 120-year period of discovery, of scratching their heads trying to map out or chart out exactly where were they in relation to the old world. So it's no surprise that with English settlement, primarily in the North American continent, in 1619, women would be brought over to increase the population. Why? Because out of any season, from late fall to the following spring, it was not uncommon for 80 to 90% of the European population of colonists to die off due to starvation, dehydration, hypothermia, or a wonderful combination of one of the, or more of those three, right? So the, the women were brought over, giving birth to children who would be born and raised in this environment. And again, after attempting to enslave two other populations, natives, as well as Europeans, European victims, Africans would arrive for the first time. And more about, more about this in the uh, next podcast. From here, we would also see the first legislative body, that being the House of Burgesses, in what will eventually become modern-day state of Virginia. Tobacco would be produced. Why? Because the tobacco seed is an extremely hardy seed that can practically grow under almost any environment but it would bring vast amounts of wealth and opportunity. Now we see the rise of the third population of free labor, the indentured servants coming over from England that knew that what they were getting into before they arrived. And no surprise, and the one that we're going to end with is the first law in the new world, and that would become, no surprise, an act of religious toleration. And the people that would put that not only into verbal effect, but would put that in writing, would be the individuals of what became known as the Plymouth Colony, founded in 1620. The Plymouth Colony, so many of Europeans came through those ports that in, the 20, in 2020, one out of 10 European Americans can trace their origin through that particular colony. It was founded, obviously, again, for religious freedom, founded by individuals that saw themselves as free of corruption, hence the term Puritans, pure. It would, they would also refer to themselves as wanderers, wherein their native tongue was pilgrim. And that's where we get the term pilgrim from. Their first governor would be John Carver. And that governor quickly realized, despite the fact that he also would be one of many that would not survive for more than a year after arrival here, or after in his position as governor, would realize that law and order had to be established before they settled in to the next winter, the winter of 1620 into 1621. So we called all of the prominent men together, closed off any exposure to outside sources, and forced them to collectively with him to put together an agreement of sorts in what they would and wouldn't do while living in the Plymouth Colony through the next torrential late fall, winter, and early spring weather conditions. That document that they would put together would eventually be for, would form the basis of a future 
Declaration of Independence, and by extension, Constitution of a Future United States of America, some 150 plus years later. And that document, of course, we know as the Mayflower Compact. So what was this Mayflower Compact all about? What did it really do for the people of the Plymouth Colony? Why did it become the basis of so many other colonies that would settle there as the decades continued to mount as we get into the 1700s? And why would the founding fathers scratch their head and reach back for a copy of this document some century and a half prior to them sitting down to write the Declaration of Independence? That document, the Mayflower Compact, is what will begin with the next episode. Thank you for listening. Go to my website, ceconsella.com. Feel free to email me with any questions or comments or book recommendations that you might have. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.